This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive, and it's Name Your Price Tool. Say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show coverage options within your budget. Visit Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This summer has been a scorcher. We're closing out what's expected to be Earth's hottest month ever recorded, according to the World Meteorological Organization. And the U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres said last week, the era of global warming has ended. The era of global boiling has arrived. Extreme temperatures remind us how much heat can affect our bodies in dangerous and sometimes deadly ways. More than 600 people die each year in the U.S. from heat-related illnesses. But emerging research shows that hot days can affect our minds and mental health as well. And we've been hearing from some of you. I absolutely cannot stand being hot. I find it very depressing. I don't want to be outside. People talk about seasonal affective disorder during the winter, and I say that I have it in the summer. My wife in particular is greatly affected by heat waves and times when she can't get out of the heat. Not only does it cause her severe anxiety in the moment, I've noticed with all my family members that the hotter it gets, the more angry, grumpy, less reasonable, and essentially less capable of enjoying the day-to-day activities. I have a history of low blood pressure and fainting spells, so I've become phobic about going outside. Uh, I do feel restricted and frustrated. Thanks to Amber in Missouri, Christian in Oklahoma, and Marie in Florida for those messages. Research shows that emergency room visits for mental health issues across age groups rise along with the temperature. And the heat can affect everything from our sleep and mood to our aggression and anxiety levels. After the break, we take a closer look at how heat affects us. And as heat waves become more intense, how can we better prepare ourselves for those effects? I'm Celeste Headley, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This message comes from Wired. On Wired Politics Lab, you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get into the conversation and welcome our guests. Joining us from White Plains, New York, is Joseph Talercio. He's a psychologist with Cognitive and Behavioral Consultants. And he's a member of the Advocacy and Outreach Committee for Climate Psychology Alliance North America, a volunteer organization of professionals that works to raise awareness about the effects of climate change on mental health. We're also joined by researchers behind two major studies on this issue. Nick Obradovich joins us from Oregon. He's chief scientist for environmental mental health at the Laureate Institute for Brain Research. It's based in it's based in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And joining us from Boston is Amruta Norisama, a professor in the environmental health department at the Boston University School of Public Health. Thank you all for joining us. So, Joseph, we heard Amber um, at the top. She says she feels like she has seasonal affective disorder for hot weather months. And we so often hear about seasonal affective disorder in terms of people becoming, experiencing depressive symptoms when um, they don't see the sun often enough. Is there a, a formal diagnosis for those who are affected by heat? 
when that audio clip played, I did have the thought that they need something like that. There is unfortunately nothing right now in the DSM like this, right? We haven't ever experienced these symptoms and this intensity of heat. But I do believe that maybe um, on this point, maybe in upcoming uh, editions of the DSM, we might see something like this because it is becoming so well understood that there is something going on here. And Professor Norisama, you published research last year that looked at this association between ambient heat and the risk of emergency department visits for mental health specifically. What did you find? Yes, so we studied the increase in rates of emergency department visits as temperatures were increasing between 2010 and 2019 across summertime periods, and this was specific for adults with commercial health insurance. And we found that there were increases in rates of emergency department visits as summertime temperatures increased across all of the different mental health outcomes that we were interested in. But interestingly enough, when we broke it down into specific mental health endpoints, including things like, for example, substance use disorders or mood anxiety and stress disorders or self-harm or schizophrenia, we saw similar increases in the rates of emergency department visits as summertime temperatures were increasing for each of these very different mental health endpoints. And again, you were only looking at people who are covered by insurance. So there's a there's a an issue of undercounting here. Right, because we can anticipate that people who don't have access to commercial health insurance, so for example, those who are on public insurance or those who are uninsured, might actually be even more vulnerable to the impacts of extreme heat exposures. And so it's likely that we're actually underestimating the mental health burden of extreme heat period. Now, Nick, you responded to that study um, with an editorial, and your editorial said the following, one of the most important questions regarding climate change and mental health remains one of the least researched. What types of clinical interventions and preventative measures can reduce the mental health burdens associated with climate change? End quote. So if that is the, one of the most important quench, questions that's least studied, where do we stand now? What, what is our status? Is it, it, are we getting more research? We are certainly getting more research. I still think we have uh, a lot, a lot more research needed on that on that question. And, and ultimately, it's a question about how do we increase individuals' baseline resilience to the kind of environmental stressors that the callers pointed out uh, at the beginning of this segment. And there are lots of potential ways to think about doing that. Uh, from clinical interventions, teaching people the skills of cognitive behavioral therapies, to um, more physiological interventions, getting people access to air conditioning and access to cooling centers. And so what we need to do is, as scholars is figure out which of those interventions is you know, very effective or most effective and which, which ones are, are most cost effective as well. And really, I, I would say a lot of that work can build on what we know from the clinical psychology literature, but also could benefit from new and, and novel studies to figure figure out the answers to those questions. So you actually are, are one of the people who's trying to do more research in this area. You co-authored a study in 2018 that looked at the risks uh, to mental health that are associated with climate change. What did you find? Yeah, so in that study, we actually leveraged data from the CDC, uh, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and they, they run this large survey every year where they uh, survey hundreds of thousands of Americans about their health behaviors and their health-related outcomes. And in that survey, they had a question about people's middle-level mental health, their mental health and well-being, uh, whether they faced some sorts of uh, mild anxiety stressors and things like that. And we were able to tie that to the 
temperatures that the people experienced over the prior month and, and, and analyzed that. And what we found was as people were exposed to hotter temperatures over the prior month, their reports, their self-reports of worsened mental health status increased. We also found that exposure to in places that had seen greater increases in temperature over time, so over longer time periods like a decade, those places were associated with an increase in the baseline rate of mental health problems. And then ultimately, we also looked at acute events like exposure to Hurricane Katrina, and we saw that those who were exposed to Hurricane Katrina in that location years later reported higher rates of these mental health problems than did those who who weren't exposed to Hurricane Katrina. So we looked at kind of across temporal scales in that way as well. Which seems to suggest, essentially you're saying that people who were exposed to heat were were more likely to say that their mental health was poorer. And it sounds as though there was a similarity between those who were experiencing higher temperatures to those who had experienced really extreme weather events like a hurricane. Um, Why did you end up researching this particular question? Uh, Ultimately, it was an extension of other work that I've done that was related to more health-related behaviors, sleep, physical activity, uh, day-to-day mood and emotional states. And what we were interested in doing is trying to help find another spot on the mental health spectrum that hadn't been studied yet. So at that point in time, uh, researchers were working on suicide and suicide as a related outcome. Uh, and we were thinking, hmm, there hasn't been much work yet in the middle of the mental health spectrum between day-to-day emotional states and acute outcomes like suicide or acute uh, hospitalization episodes. So that was ultimately the, the reason for, for wanting to try and run that study. And we just got lucky and found uh, the right measure in, in the CDC survey. So Professor Norisama, why is it important to study the impact of heat on our brains, not just our bodies. I mean, we we know that it can have a, a real impact on, on our physiology, but what about our psychology? So this is a great question, and I think there are a couple of different reasons why this is so important. The first one is that we know that the interactions that people are having with the mental health care system are very severe. And, you know, the more that we can avoid these types of emergency department visits by providing patients with care before they need to go to the emergency room, the better off we're going to be, the better off the individual is um, in terms of their mental health and their emotional health, and the better off the healthcare system is, frankly, because each of these emergency department visits represents a very important, um, a very important interaction with the system. And um, additionally, we know that there are people who are facing the ongoing psychological impacts associated with extreme heat exposure. And one of the things that we want to make sure of is that as we start to experience more extreme events, we aren't compounding the mental health impacts of heat exposure. We're talking about high temperatures and mental health. And still to come, we'll talk about how we can address the feelings of dread and anxiety that come with a changing climate and how mental health professionals can prepare. This message comes from NPR sponsor Made in Cookware. Did you know that many popular dishes in Tom Colicchio's craft restaurant are made in Made in Cookware? Made in supplies chefs with high-end cookware because Made in makes exactly what demanding chefs look for. When you level up your cooking, remember what great dishes on menus worldwide have in common. They're Made in Made in. Save up to 25% this Memorial Day from the 18th until the 27th. Visit MadeInCookware.com. That's M-A-D-E-I-N Cookware.com. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Integrative Therapeutics with vitamins and supplements previously available only through practitioners, including Cortisol Manager. Unlock your best self with clinician-curated supplements from Integrative Therapeutics, now on Amazon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from one of you. My name is Sophia, and I am an older Gen Z, and my climate anxiety stems from all the generations that have come before us that talk about our kids are going to save it, our kids are going to fix it, it's up to you now. And I am not sure if I can even describe the intense anxiety that I feel that puts on me and people my age. It's like previous generations, the boomers and the Gen Xers especially, have already given up on changing their own lives and what they might do. What we need to be asking is what we can all do, not just, oh, the kids will fix it for us. Thanks for that message from Sophia. We also got an email from Dylan in Washington, D.C., who says, If you want to talk about heat affecting our brains, you need look no further than line cooks. It's hot outside and we're surrounded by extremely hot elements, stove, oven, deep fryer. Heat no longer bothers me. I'm pretty sure we've all gotten heat stroke at least once. So, okay. Nick, heat extreme extreme heat can be very deadly. Uh, last summer, more than 62,000 people died of heat-related causes in Europe. Um, and I and I asked this of Amruta as well, but let me ask you, when heat is so very dangerous to the body, why study the impact of heat on mental health? That's a great question. So ultimately, I, I wouldn't really draw a strict distinction between the body and the mind. Uh, what affects the body affects the mind. What affects the mind, in turn, can affect the body. And ultimately human well-being is a function of all of the health-related behaviors that we take, uh, both to protect our mental health, but also to protect our physiological health. And that's part of the reason why we, were, we, we have and are studying things like sleep and physical activity and other types of health-related health behaviors, because ultimately, these are all probably interrelated, i.e., when your sleep is disrupted because you're experiencing an unusually hot nighttime temperature and you just can't sleep quite as well or you're delayed going to bed, that has knock-on effects on whether you exercise the next day or whether you're a little bit more grumpy or not. And whether or not you exercise the next day has knock-on effects on, indeed, whether you're grumpy or not or how well you sleep the next night. And all of these are interrelated. And the the brain and mental well-being is a very, very important component of that. But, but ultimately, we, we want to know how everything interrelates because exposure to heat at night might lead to a very different adaptive intervention than if it's all driven by increased grumpiness because you're hot and you're exposed to heat as a line cook during the day. So, so ultimately, we want to look at all of those factors. Just a clarification on on the numbers themselves. Um, We mentioned earlier more than 600 people die every year in the U.S. from heat-related illnesses. And I just mentioned more than 62,000 people died in Europe last summer of heat-related causes. Why that disparity in, in numbers? Why are there tens and thousands more deaths in Europe? Well, heat deaths aren't necessarily uh, smoothly distributed in, in time. And what I mean by that is 
when you have a very severe heat wave, um, as Europe has had over the, uh, over the last decade, they've had a number of very severe heat waves. Those very severe heat waves can produce much worse uh, mortality outcomes and, and, and also all of the other uh, health spectrum outcomes than if you just experience slightly warmer than normal uh, temperatures. Obviously, the U.S. has been experiencing very hot temperatures this year. There's a, there's a big open empirical question in that that relates to adaptation, and, and that is a large amount of the U.S. has more access to air conditioning and cooling than many parts of Europe that have historically been cooler on average and so haven't had uh, the need for air conditioning in a lot of their places. A lot of the United Kingdom, a lot of Germany just simply doesn't have, uh, for example, just simply doesn't have air conditioning access. And there there was a very interesting study uh, done in the United States that looked historically at the rollout of air conditioning in the United States and the way that that Uh, moderated the effect of heat on mortality. And you see this very substantial drop over time from the 1950s and 60s onwards in the way that heat produced mortality. And it's a very, very significant drop. So air conditioning and the ability to be cool in in light of those heat waves seems really important, especially on the mortality dimension. So Joseph, according to the American Psychological Association, more than two-thirds of Americans report feeling some sort of anxiety about the climate. We heard one of our uh, listeners, Sophia, talking about um, what sort of impact might that have, long-term changes in the climate or projected long-term changes? What might that have on our, on our mental health? So what Sophia has shared, unfortunately, is very common, right? We do know that climate anxiety is the term that is being used to describe this is on the rise. And how can it not, right? When you look out your window, I, I, in New York City, in the beginning of June, I looked down my window, it looked like the scene from Dune, right? With everything was orange, and then we have these From the wildfires, yeah. Yeah, from the wildfires, which, which correlated with heat, right? That, yeah. that didn't just happen by itself. That happened because of this increased heat, right? So the systematic uh, shutdown that is occurring. And then what Sophia was saying with this idea, it's like, oh, the younger generations will figure that out. Um, that, that is being felt, right? This is one of the reasons we know younger generations are less likely to consider having families, right? There, there, are, there are studies and data coming out saying, why do I want to have a child when the world might be on fire? Um, so we're seeing changes in how people are actually planning their life. But then on terms of psychiatric well-being, I want to clarify that everyone's going to be affected by this and everyone is already affected by this. Right? We know that if somebody has uh, a previous psychiatric diagnosis, for the most part, as heat increases, those symptoms will get worse. Right? We, people have bipolar disorder, they will experience more uh, switching between mania and depression. Substance use increases, um, the, uh, schizophrenia gets worse, mood dis- dysregulation increases. Um, but even for, for those who do not have psychiatric conditions, mood also is impacted. I think one of your callers in the beginning had uh, referenced their family members saying that everyone was feeling the impacts of it. And again, regardless of our previous diagnoses, when temperatures increase, we see less positive uh, emotions, more negative emotions, more fatigue. Um, right? So no one's going to really be spared by this, and no one is at this point already. And maybe you have suggestions on how to handle that, especially with Sophia. You could see and hear in her voice the frustration with her possibly friends, family members. I feel that too, right? When I get extremely anxious uh, uh, with visible 
tangible climate change happening. And my neighbor down the street for one person just bought a massive truck. <laughs> and I, I felt anger. <laughs> I felt anger in my body. What do you suggest I, I do with that? Sure, I agree. Like I, I could feel the frustration and the anxiety in Sophia's voice in that call, right? Like I, I felt yeah. that internally. Um, and with you too, like that frustration you feel, like with emotions, right? They're always valid. That's always important to recognize. Emotional experiences are always valid. What we do with our emotions, maybe that's where we can draw the line. But if you feel your emotions, feel your emotions. If you try to push them away, they, they get worse. Um, but we can do a few things to, to manage this. And one is just kind of what Nick said uh, earlier about recognizing this strong link between physical and mental health, right? In, in America, we tend to separate these two, but really they're, they're not separate. So things to take care of our physical health are gonna be needed to take care of our emotional well-being at this time, such as making sure we're getting proper sleep, staying hydrated, right? Maintaining our, our best that we can, our physical well-being, right? The, um, and then on top of that, recognizing how we, how we dress, right? having, um, decreasing our exposure to the sun, um, wearing light and loose clothing, that's gonna be very helpful there. Um, but then two other things to consider. Um, one is gonna be, um, one of the more powerful tools is, is cognitive reframing. And so I am a cognitive behavioral therapist and cognitive reframing is this idea of flipping the image around, right? Kind of viewing the other side of the coin. One thing that a lot of us are agreeing with um, who are listening to this, this episode, I imagine, is that this is a scary situation. However, what could we do with this? Instead of being frozen, instead of giving up hope and saying, what's the point? How can we use our frustrations, our anger, our sadness, recognizing that there's a collective unit here, we're not by ourselves, and how can we implement some change? And that kind of flip around is so important to help feel that we can accomplish something together, right? It was really scary when the, again, like I said, the sky turned orange in June here, and with all the increased temperatures, right, and seeing every day essentially throughout July, another record is broken somewhere in the world. However, recognizing that people are talking about this, and with that, we can recognize that there are a lot of people on our side to make some change occur here, right? We aren't alone. And the more obvious these impacts are, the more people would get on board to implement some change. So I want to challenge some of that hopelessness we feel and recognizing we can implement that. Um, and the other thing I just want to quickly mention is also recognizing vulnerability related to psychiatric medications. Now, psychiatric medications are incredibly powerful. They help so many people. And in fact, I think one in five Americans are on them. However, some of those medications also do make us more vulnerable to heat. Oh. Now, this is not to, not to say stop taking medications. Keep them. They are so powerful. However, recognizing for one in five Americans, that might be an extra vulnerability we have to recognize that it disrupts our ability to, to regulate our temperature. And so it's just something that is constantly there that we might also have to recognize we might have to play around with or, or, or switch out. Or speak to the doctor, yeah. Um, Sean in Arkansas emails, what's interesting and tragic is how the poorest are most heavily impacted and least able to afford counseling while the wealthy live relatively protective lives. The source of anxiety for the poor is their hardship, which is uh, talking about the disparity in income that affects not only the ability to be able to pay for air conditioning, but the access to insurance and the ability to pay for counseling as well. Um, Nick, to what extent does our, our research in this area cover things like access? Access not just to AC, um, but access to treatment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I, I think that that comment is, is exactly right. And from the studies that we have done where we have had um, indicators of, of people's socioeconomic status available in those studies, we have found that the effects of heat on well-being are larger for those who are poorer in the sample. Um, that said, and I think this is really an important area for, for additional research uh, moving forward, is that most of the studies we've had on this topic come from areas where data is collected and available, which means richer countries on average. Yeah. And so we, don't, we really don't know uh, the, what these effects look like in poorer countries, in, in part because the data just isn't there to answer some of these questions. But that's really important. Um, if, if we think that poor people in the U.S. have larger effects, then probably people who are in very poor countries may have particularly large effects. Now, I should also say that there's, there's another side to that coin, which is that, and this relates to the question about uh, going outside from the air conditioning and, and are you physiologically adapted to the heat, it, it can also go in the other direction in the sense that if, if populations are indeed physiologically adapted to the heat, they may be more physiologically resilient uh, to heat stress. And so it's ultimately a really open empirical question as to what we'd see if we were able to run these studies in Uganda, for example. Uh, and, and ultimately, we need, we need to do that. It's a very, very important question. We're talking about how rising temperatures impact our moods and mental health. Stay with us. We've got a lot more still ahead. Support for NPR and the following message come from Sattva. Sattva luxury mattresses are every bit as elegant as the most expensive brands. But because they're sold online, they're about half the price. Visit com slash NPR and save an additional $200. Hello, I'm Johnny O'Hanson Jr. Join me each week on In Black America as we profile current and historically significant figures whose stories help illuminate life in Black America. You don't want to miss the conversation. KUT Radio and In Black America are members of the NPR Network. Thanks for listening to In Black America. Moms know the ups and downs of life. It's what makes them great subjects for books. This is one of the things that fiction can do, right? It can give us a window into the battles that each person is waging or facing, but it doesn't mean that we condone her actions. This week on NPR's Book of the Day podcast, we are discussing books centering mothers. So call your mom, then tune into the Book of the Day podcast from NPR. Let's get back to the conversation. So this July is expected to be the hottest month ever recorded on Earth. Joseph, how how many degrees does it have to rise before you see a, a difference in someone's state of well-being, their mental health? Unfortunately, it will vary per person. Um, but there was one study that um, came out actually just looking at Facebook posts, and they found that when it went above even just 70 degrees Fahrenheit, we were seeing changes in people's um, uh, Facebook statuses, right? Huh. And so wow. <laughs> 70 is not very high. No. Um, but it, it kind of highlights the difference that we all have, right? Every single one of us has our own um, health makeup and medical health histories and also our preferences, right? And what we're used to. And so it doesn't have to, there's no unfortunate magic number, but we do know when it gets, you know, very high, we are going to see changes, right? And there are limits to what humans can tolerate, right? When, we, when it gets above 104 degrees, we know that the human body actually requires more energy. It has to use more energy to cool down, right? So above 104, you're going to really start to see um, significant changes as the body essentially starts rerouting 
its resources to work on cooling itself down rather than mood regulation. Nick, was that your study? It was. It was. <laughs> yeah. So, Amruta, I, I have to ask about whether there is a gender divide here as well. And I ask that because there are, are certain times in a woman's life when she's hotter anyway, not just during menopause and heat flashes. And speaking as a woman who is in her 50s now, uh, if I am out and where the heat index is at 110 and I have a hot flash, it's a serious problem at that point. But also when you're pregnant, your body temperature is is quite high very often. Is there a gender difference here? Yes, yeah, so I think that there very well could be. And I think, you know, the point that you make is a really excellent one. You know, I myself <laughs> went through the experience of being pregnant during some extreme heat periods. And I think that, you know, the other thing that we have to keep in mind is that, as I was saying earlier, it's not just about the single event that people are experiencing, right? The mental health impacts of these different exposures are more than just the sum of the parts. So if somebody's going through other types of uh, you know, stressors that are influencing their mental health. For example, people going through a postpartum period as well could be more highly susceptible to, you know, extreme heat and the mental health impacts of extreme heat or other types of climate-related events. You know, we're we're talking specifically here about extreme heat, but there are a whole lot of other things that are happening that are co-occurring with those extreme heat periods. Um, so some of these things could potentially be very impacted by your individual circumstances. And the other thing too is that, uh, you know, when we talk about the gender differences, there are some things that might make men also more susceptible to extreme heat and mental health impacts. For example, people who work in uh, occupations that tend to be very highly exposed to extreme heat, um, they ha- there is a tendency for a gender disparity there as well. People who are outdoor workers, people who are working in construction sites, people who ma- might have very high levels of occupational exposure to heat, um, there might be gender disparities there as well. So I think it can go in both directions. Uh, heat is also really associated with the type of crime that causes a lot of psychological trauma here. Um, research in seven U.S. cities shows that rising temperatures led to a 4 or 5% increase in sex offenses. Domestic violence incidents um, were more likely in hot months than in cold. One scientist found climate change might bring up to 2 million more aggravated assaults. What could be done to prevent this? Yeah, so this is a really important point. And I think that there's a couple of different you know, things that we might be thinking about when we're thinking about the occurrence of these, um, you know, violent events. And one of those things is that extreme heat, you know, as it's causing these issues of aggression and increased stress and anxiety, um, at the same time, it's also sending people outdoors. It's making us uh, go out into our neighborhoods more frequently. It's increasing the social interactions that people have. Um, And so I think one of the things that we can do is, uh, and and this really speaks to some of the um, you know adaptation and and really the what can we do about it side of things is that uh, time and again what we see as being protective for people during extreme heat is relying on our social networks so friends checking in with friends neighbors making sure that their neighbors are doing okay and really you know making sure that people that we know who might be particularly vulnerable during those extreme heat periods are taken care of and know what access to resources they have but if we extend that a little bit to the societal ties and the communities that we have. I think one of the things that we can do that uh, makes spaces safer and from both the health perspective, but from also the community perspective is providing those different resources that 
improve our communities. So a good example is better access to urban green space, better access to urban blue space. So in the city of Boston, you know, opening up more green spaces like parks and recreational areas where communities can come together and really cool off during those heat periods, but also experience a safe place to be outdoors and to enjoy themselves during those heat waves. And I think that, you know, as we start to improve some of the public spaces that we have available, we'll start to see some of the beneficial impacts in terms of reduce in, reductions in crime, reductions in violence, because that's a natural com- component that comes along with beautifying our green spaces and beautifying our communities. And Joseph, I'm hoping you can give... Um myself and uh, my colleagues a little advice here to respond to Sarah Elin in Cincinnati because Sarah emails us this. What contributes to my climate anxiety is the constant news headlines about this using words such as catastrophic and unprecedented. These phrases and constant headlines do not help. They only heighten my anxiety that I already have about the climate. So what is a journalist to do when uh, the temperatures are unprecedented? how do I how do we cover climate change without heightening people's anxiety? Yeah, that's that's a difficult balance to work, right? Because hey, I, if you can, we can find other words to describe these unprecedented events, I think let's use them. Um, and I, what I imagine the point of those headlines is is to really capture attention. What what I think we need to do is instead of just saying that you know, we're all doomed, this is the end of it all. I think we also have to work that there are alternatives here that we can engage in and there are solutions. Rather than just saying, um, what, this weekend, right, the, this, the ocean current might collapse. Okay, and what does that mean, right? And that isn't as catastrophic as the title makes it seem, but this is a problem, right? We, we know that um, more intense headlines captures attention. However, it misses that, that underlying component. And I think we need to really focus on the fact that, you know, climate change is here. This isn't, these aren't warnings anymore that we used to hear, right? In the next 10, 15 years, we're going to see this, but this is here. Okay. And now what? Um, I, like I mentioned earlier, I do cognitive behavioral therapy, but under that is dialectical behavioral therapy. And a key component of that is actually the language we use. Instead of using the terms, but we use the word and to kind of recognize that even if something is happening, there's more to that story right? So there are catastrophic temperatures and we can make some change occurring through X, Y, and Z. And I think we have to start to draw out those sentences a little bit more to start to think that this isn't necessarily the end, that we actually can come from this. Um, And as we were saying here, we're a resilient species and we're very creative with how we can solve solutions, but let's recognize that's part of the story. And Professor Norisama, you have actually researched one of those solutions in another country. You researched the effects of heat waves in India and also the heat alert system used in South Korea. They have a heat wave alert um, where they, municipalities get a warning bulletin from the Korean Meteorological Administration. Could those heat warning systems be used in the U.S.? Yes. And in fact, in a lot of places, we actually do have existing heat alerts across the U.S. Um, The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration issues some heat alerts and different municipalities across the U.S. already have in place some heat adaptation plans. You know, in the city of Boston, for example, we have cooling centers that open up during extreme heat periods that rely on those heat wave alerts being broadcast in advance so that we know, okay, these are the resources that we have available. Um, So I think, you know, it's a matter 
matter of different communities and different municipalities just taking advantage of the existing work that's been done and implementing those different uh, types of heat adaptation strategies and measures in different communities across the U.S. But a lot of the legwork is already available. And, and Nick, jumping off from what Joseph said, what kind of solution would you suggest? At the individual level, I think I would return back to the point that there really is no separation between the the mind and the body in terms of health, and that the more that people can try to improve their overall health and well-being, improve their sleep, try and get some exercise, try and eat as as good as they can, uh, do things to engage with their friends and community, because that's absolutely indeed a a very important part of health, Uh, all of those things are really important uh, in terms of being able to sustain personal resilience in the face of any type of stressor, but in in particular in the face of environmental stressors too. And Joseph, um, solutions from you for those those who are listening? So, right. So solutions for an individual level or a systematic? Because those are two different targets there. Well, I'm going to go individual because you only have about a minute. Okay. Individually, right. I think, again, hitting all those, those vulnerabilities, we have to manage them as best as we can. Um, recognizing what is going to impact you, recognizing that um, we each have our own limits and we have to recognize what those limits are and recognize we have to do our best to decrease our exposure to the heat as best as, as best as we can, but we will be limited to what we can do. But going out, getting some, getting some fresh air, getting some green space, right? We know that provides some natural calming component and plant some more green space, right? So you'll help reduce the temperature and we know green space actually does a significant job of decreasing our anxieties and our depression. So that all three of you have mentioned green space and Amruta mentioned blue space as well. So I'm guessing plant some plant some green things. Um, that is Joseph Talercio, a psychologist with Cognitive and Behavioral Consultants in New York and a member of the Climate Psychology Alliance North America. We also spoke with Nick Abradovich, chief scientist for environmental mental health at the Laureate Institute for Brain Research in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Amruta Norisarma, a professor in the Environmental Health Department at the Boston University School of Public Health. Thanks to all of you for joining us. Today's producer was Anna Casey. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Celeste Headley. We'll talk more soon. This is 1A. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Your business faces specific challenges and unique opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, custom-tailored to your short- and long-term goals. Backed by the expertise, strategy, and resources of a top-10 commercial bank, a dedicated team works with you to support your success and help achieve your goals. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. 
I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR.